You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist is with us. We'll take your calls, your SMSs, your tweets, and your WhatsApps. Chris, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thanks, and you? Yeah, not bad. Doing all right, despite the the best efforts of South Africa to destroy the world with another variant, <laughs> or so the, the sayings. It's ridiculous, all this, isn't it? And we, I, I know, we, we try you know, our I know best. Cyril Ramaphosa has has been making international headlines, actually pointing out, look, this is ridiculous to cut South Africa off from the rest of the world and punish South Africa for finding this thing. It's kind of disincentivizing science and countries to to fess up in future, isn't it? If you, you find this thing, you then tell everyone about it and think you're do, being helpful. And and then they, they basically ostracize you and shut all the travel corridors. There are actually, actually jokes all over social media that said, um, the next time our scientists find something, they must just keep it to themselves. Keep because quiet. the world, yeah, keep, keep quiet. quiet, let them figure it out on their own because the world Crazy. is punishing us. But now, no, he's, he's quite right. He is quite right because the fact is it's, it's, it's all over the place. And by the yeah. time we know about these things, the horse has already bolted. When you look at how mobile the human population is around the world and, and the fact that uh, already Teng has detected more than 3,000 cases of this, then if there's 3,000 cases they know about, there will be many, many more cases they don't and many more cases that will have fled the country and gone everywhere. So it's sort of seeding itself all over the place. So to then say, right, okay, now we're going to put the kibosh on travel. It's too late. Yes, enhance your screening. Yes, have a closer scrutiny of where people are coming from and keep an eye on people to see if they're infected. But basically, red listing countries at the drop of a hat is, is, is not going to work. And I think it's um, probably something, well, I hope it's something they're going to row back on pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. So I have a question for you for today. Uh, I'm mum to a six-month-old, and I'm extremely fascinated at some of the things that my baby just does without us teaching it to him. Like now, he's learning to clap his hands, but we've been teaching him repetitively. But there are things, like when he's learning to sit, where he automatically taught himself when he's about to fall over to catch himself so he can catch his balance. So what happens in the brain that determines the things that are reflex and automatic versus the behavior that is learned from mom repeating it over and over and over? There are some parts of the nervous system that are pre-configured and pre-wired, which we're born with. Reflexes, certain automatic behaviors, which are effectively save your life type maneuvers. And in the same way that birds never have to be shown how to build a nest, they intrinsically and innately know how to build a nest in the right place with the right materials to make something that will attract a bird of the opposite sex to want to come and have baby birds in that nest. It's exactly the same. We have parts of our nervous system that we're born with that wire themselves up preferentially after we're born. Those areas, those parts of the brain that do things that will prevent injury, make us more successful, will facilitate our growth and development. And self-writing, balance, that kind of thing, they're all part of that equation. And those sorts of parts of the nervous system develop faster and put themselves together and wire themselves up more promptly than other systems that are deprioritized during development and come later, such as behavior, language, that kind of thing. Okay, it's very, very fascinating to watch. I mean, we know these things, but watching it in action is is like, where where'd you learn that? I never taught you that, and suddenly <laughs> he's able to do it. So I absolutely love that part of the parenting. So we're going to go to the lines and take uh, some of your questions. Shadadi in Springs, hi. Shadadi? Um, hi, hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Hi. Okay. 
Cool. Just a quick one. I'm, I'm a nurse in the neonatal ICU. I've noticed something after we put babies under photo for John Business. Your, your, your term baby, your 40 weekers, your 38 weekers. After being under photo light for a day or two, when they are off the light, they have a problem with the sucking reflex. I have asked the pediatricians that I've worked with what could the, the, the cause be, and I've never had a, an answer to what the problem could be, why the babies lose their sucking reflexes. So I'm hoping, doctor, can I help me out? That's a brilliant, brilliant question, Shadadi. Uh, d- uh, doctor, did you get that? What's being referred to is that some babies, when they're born, are a bit yellow, a condition called jaundice. Yes. And this is because when a baby is inside mum, when the baby is breaking down its red blood cells, which have got the chemical haemoglobin in them, and when haemoglobin breaks down, it is turned into a chemical called bilirubin, which is a yellow colour. Normally, that gets exported into mum's bloodstream across the placenta, and then mum's kidneys or mum's liver deal with it. But the baby doesn't have to worry. But when the baby comes out and is now standing on its own two feet or rather lying on its back because it's a newborn, it doesn't necessarily always have all the systems it needs to break down that bilirubin, which is being produced in response to getting rid of its old and clapped out red blood cells. And so the levels can rise for a while. And it turns out that light at the blue end of the spectrum can break apart the molecule and turn it into a more water-soluble form rather than a fat-soluble form. And so it gets peed out quite safely. And that's why we put babies that go a bit yellow because they're, when they're born, their systems haven't revved up enough to, to do this for themselves yet under a blue light. And that blue light converts the bilirubin, which is fat soluble and yellow into the soluble form, which doesn't damage the brain because that's the risk. If it builds up, it can build up in the nervous system and cause brain problems. And then they just pee it out quite harmlessly. Now, it might be that uh, in babies that you're doing this to, it might be that, that they're, they're just bit young and bit um, sort of premature that might be one of the reasons why the, they're, they're losing their suckling reflex it could be that there's something else wrong with them it could just be that they're feeling much better because of having had the jaundice dealt with mm. and and they're quite comfortable and they don't feel thirsty or hungry under those circumstances so there's a range of possibilities here i've not heard this as an association but it doesn't mean it's not an important one so it would be worth looking into and checking that something else isn't there accounting for why you you see a difference in behavior but the exposure to blue light to get rid of jaundice is a very important um, intervention and actually it owes its origins to a woman who was a, a a children's nurse about 100 years ago and she noticed that when she took babies that were yellow outside and put them in the sunshine that their skin when she took the nappy off where the nappy had been was yellower than the skin where the nappy hadn't been because, and she correctly surmised, the blue light in sunlight was breaking down the yellow pigment in the sun-exposed bits of the skin, but not where the clothing and the nappy was. And that's how it became apparent that you could treat neonatal jaundice with blue light. That is very, very fascinating. Uh, We have Cynthia in Sandringham with an interesting one. Cynthia, go ahead. Um, Thanks very much. Um, Dr. Chris, I was sitting in the garden, I think yesterday, and a, um, what I call a Christmas beetle, a little brown thing came along, and it wanted to get into the garden. In order to do, um, to get to the garden patch, it was on the ground, it had to climb up some bricks, and it just kept falling down on its back. And eventually, it just took off to the left, scaled the wall again, kept falling, and, you know, eventually, 
managed to turn right and get to the garden that it wanted to. And I was amazed. I mean, do we underestimate the intelligence of insects? Um, I thought this was incredibly focused. You know, it walked two feet, climbed up again, turned to the right and got where it wanted to. What, what is your comment on that? Mm. Well, I think insects are amazing and we probably do underestimate their abilities. Bees, for example, can count. And I'm not kidding you, they really can. They can also learn from each other. And there was a lovely sequence of experiments in the last sort of eight, nine years uh, from one of the universities in London, Queen Mary University of London, where they gave bees a football game to play and they had a bee that watched another bee boot a ball into a hole and get a reward. And the bee could copy and they also know how to count because they could educate these bees that when they went to a certain number, past a certain number of, uh, say, visual targets, after they had totted up, say, about three, they would then get a reward. And so the bees could learn to count and fly unerringly. And it's not surprising that those bees were doing that because, of course, bees have to navigate. They can fly and forage kilometers away from their home hive. And so they need to be able to navigate very carefully, integrate landmarks and that kind of thing. They also need to keep track of which flowers they've visited because if they go to the same plant repeatedly too soon, then they will uh, deplete the nectar and their flight will be wasted and they're burning off precious energy flying there and not getting any sugar reward to make up for it. So these insects are very, very good at doing what they do. Another piece of research done about 10 years ago looked at ants and the, these researchers realized that ants count their steps to navigate from their nest to wherever they're going and back again. And they realized that they were doing this by either adding stilts to the ants' legs. They glued pig hairs onto the ants' legs to make their legs longer, or they trimmed their legs down a bit to make them shorter. And because the ants were counting steps, and by changing the length of their strides, by giving them either longer or shorter legs, the ants missed their nest. And this this tells you the ants this are counting. This sounds such a cruel, cruel experiment. <laughs> and so I, I think, yes, insects are fascinating. They are clever. And the other, my favourite other story is that, just like us, bees are addicted to caffeine. And plant, plants put caffeine into their nectar because in this way they can enhance bees' memories and they make bees remember that they fed from that flower better than other flowers. And so bees are slaves to caffeine just like we are. And I think that's my favourite insect-related fact. We continue with The Naked Scientist. We'll be taking your calls, your SMSs, your tweets and your WhatsApps. 702. The Naked Scientist. We are chatting to Chris Smith and we're taking your calls, your SMSs, your tweets and your WhatsApps. What are some of those fascinating things that you'd like to find out about? A question that came through on WhatsApp, a doctor, and it is unsigned, says, question for the Naked Scientist. What causes sleep paralysis? Apparently, it's supposed to happen once or twice in your lifetime. For me, it happens three to four times a week. Yep. For some people, it is very, very common and it's a real manifestation. And it's really frightening when it happens because people wake up, but they can't move and they really can't move. And then it takes a period of time before suddenly movement is restored and then they can both wake up and get up. Now, this is actually a perfectly natural, normal system that all of us have. And it's there to protect us, because if you were to act out your dreams or get excited in your sleep. You might be prancing around your bedroom, throw yourself out the window, fall down the stairs, whatever, because you wouldn't know what you were doing. So we have a system in place that when we go to sleep, 
turns off most of our motor system so that we don't uh, thrash around and fall out of bed. This is a region called the subcerulea region in your brain stem, which is the region of the central nervous system that connects the big bit of the brain at the top of your head down to your spinal cord. And sitting in the brain stem are these clusters of nerve cells that when you go to sleep, they become active and they gate the flow of movement information out to your muscles. So they stop you moving inappropriately. And normally that system is engaged as we go to sleep and disengaged as we wake up. And you can sometimes become sensitive to it becoming engaged because there's a phenomenon called a hypnic jerk. And as you go to sleep, some people suddenly find themselves jerking frantically or they'll wake themselves up by a sudden shuddering movement. And this is this system triggering. And it should just release as soon as you become aroused and wake up and you're alert again. But in some people, for some reason, it doesn't or at least not initially, or at least not all the time. And this is what produces this sensation of sleep paralysis. You wake up and you become conscious, but the normal flow of information out to your muscles is blocked, so you can't move anything. And it's quite frightening because people think they've become paralysed in their sleep and they're now going to stay like that. The good news is that for most people, they won't stay like that. It's going to be absolutely fine. It will just retreat the paralysis uh, over a short period of time and you'll be back to normal. It feels like a lot longer than it really is because your perception of time is distorted and you're also a bit nervous. But um, that is the basis of it. It's also the basis of you have those sorts of dreams where someone's chasing you and you can't run away. You feel in your sleep as though you're very weak or enfeebled or you try and fight someone off and you're really pathetic and you can't do it. Yeah. And it's the same reason that you, you that system is disabling all your movements. And so your body's expecting you to be able to move and run away and move very fast and nothing's happening. And that's the reason you get that weird sensation in your dreams of, of impotence. All right, Jay in Pretoria. Hi, go ahead. Uh, afternoon. I'd like to know if in, say, 2021, I took the single J&J vaccine and then do the J&J booster in 2021. But now come 2022, I go and do the Pfizer one and two. Can you do that, number one, uh, or is it unnecessary? Jay, we don't know what the best way to produce long-term immunity is with these different combinations of vaccines but we have some initial insights because some trials are being done to look at this very question including trials in the UK like the Comcov trial where they did actually mix and match between vaccines and find out what the best booster regimen probably was. To sort of back up from that and give a very general overview the mixing and matching of vaccines is called heterologous vaccination, and it has a long history. This is not something that people are doing by chance or just making a snap decision about. There's very good evidence for mixing different vaccines to produce actually a better immune response in the long term than if you just use repeated doses of the same vaccine. And this stands to reason because by stimulating the immune system with something slightly different to what you received as your initial course of protection, you probably broaden as well as reinforce your existing immune response. You make it more focused, but also potentially broader and more entrenched. So it's there in a more resilient way going forward. So I would say at the moment, you, you can do any of these things. And as one friend of mine who's an immunologist at the University of Cambridge said to me, vaccines are good and more vaccines is even better. So getting vaccinated is a good idea regardless. And having repeated vaccines is certainly not going to do any harm. But we don't yet know what the best 
time duration or gap for different people of different ages with different disease backgrounds, etc. We don't know exactly fine-grained what that data are yet, but we will certainly be learning. And I would say if you are offered the chance to have a booster with a, a different vaccine, it certainly wouldn't do you any harm if you had that. And you would probably want to avail yourself of that, certainly at the moment while we're in these uncertain times with these various variants washing around that might or might not be what we call vaccine escape mutants. So you need a higher level of antibody to fend them off. So having uh, extra boosters along the way is a good idea. Thank you so much. Uh, let's go to Temba in bedrooms. Temba, very quickly, go ahead. Hi. Um, basically, I'm blind. Uh, basically, I, I was informed by my doctor that uh, the pilot project that was conducted in the UK on the uh, uh, stem cells, the retinal implant, has been halted. So I want to find out from the from scientists, is that is that correct, or perhaps they're still continuing it because it was it was started initially in 2012, back in 2012. So now it, it, it didn't. For it told me that it, it has been halted. So I want to find out if that's true or not. All right, thank you so much, Temba. Doctor, Temba, I don't know which trial you're referring to, so I'd prefer not to speculate. There are lots of trials looking at various sight-robbing conditions and using stem cells to restore or repair the retina. There are other studies which are looking at putting implants into the retina that do the job of some parts of the retina to make up for the sight deficit. If you can tell tell us or you want to get in touch with me off-air with a few more details about your condition, I can go and find out which trials might be running and which might or might not have been withdrawn and I can get that back to you. So if you give the team your details, I'll uh, see what I can do for you. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much, uh Chris, for all of these fascinating insights that we get to walk away with after having this wonderful feature with you. Chris Smith, The Naked Scientist.